Welcome to the Cyber Traps podcast. I am Jethro Jones coming to you this week from uh, Southern Utah County and the founder of the B Podcast Network and author of the book, School X and How to Be a Transformative Principal. I'm a former principal at all levels of K-12 education. Greetings, everyone. I'm Frederick Lane, an author, attorney, and educational consultant, normally based in Brooklyn, New York, but currently a good bit farther south than that. I'm the author of 10 books, including most recently, Cyber Traps for Educators 2.0, Raising Cyberethical Kids, and Cyber Traps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Jethro and I have teamed up to bring timely, entertaining, and useful information to teachers, parents, and others about the risks arising from the use and misuse of digital devices. Over the coming weeks and months, we'll be talking to some of the world's leading experts from the fields of education, parenting, sociology, and cyber safety. Join us as we look at what it takes to better navigate our increasingly high-tech world. For more information or to donate to our work, please visit centerforcyberethics.org. And I will say, Jethro, just as an aside, that the Center for Cyberethics has uh, added one new board member who I think is really going to galvanize us going forward and do some outreach in terms of fundraising. So we hope to have lots more to tell folks about that in the weeks to come. But you should know that the Cybertraps podcast is a production of the Center for Cyberethics, which is a 501c3 independent nonpartisan educational institute dedicated to the study and promotion of cyberethics as a positive social force through research, curricula development, publishing and media, professional training, and public advocacy. Greetings there, Jethro. Happy Monday, Fred. We should have Rachel come on the show. I don't see why we haven't actually thought of that already. So I know. <laughs> I am sure that she would be, also. but I, I bet she'll want to talk about cybersecurity. So yes, we'll I think she will. <laughs> yeah. But I definitely think that that's a good idea. So when we have our board meeting, which is next week, let's throw that question out there and see if we can set it up. Yeah, I think that's good. So we are talking about a... Uh, a hot topic today and a controversial topic to be sure. Um, we're talking about the cyber traps of choice, uh, pregnancy in a post row era, pregnancy and privacy in a post row era. Did I say that right? Now it sounds funny. Post row world era, whatever we want to say. Yeah. <laughs> but, whatever. but I think um, given that we're at the top of the show and, and certainly speaking for myself, but I, I, Actually, you can chime in as you see fit, but but the point of this particular show, given what a hot button topic this is and how polarizing it can be, it is important for people to understand that we're not approaching this from a pro or anti position with respect to the decisions people make, uh, regardless of where they live. Uh, I certainly feel agnostic. Uh, obviously that is up to the conscience and the morality and the religious beliefs of whoever is making that decision. But the reason I suggested this to you for today, Jethro, is that number one, I think it's always good to talk a little bit about what the Supreme Court has actually done and what the implications are. And I'm always eyes deep in that stuff anyway. And then beyond that, I think it's been very clear from the relatively uh, rapid flow of articles that there are people who are legitimately concerned about some of the privacy implications of what's occurred. 
And we're going to be talking about that from the perspective, uh, first, specifically of educators who may be particularly vulnerable, and then secondly, the public at large. And I think it's a great opportunity to understand more about digital investigations and how much information we are putting out about ourselves into the world. So regardless of what your position is on abortion or the Dobbs decision, there's a lot of good stuff in here for you to think about in terms of what data you share. Yeah, and that's really the point here because this is about a cyber trap and the repercussions that could come from it. And that's what's so important for us to be talking about is that this is a very polarizing issue. And if you say whether you are pro-life or pro-choice, then the walls immediately go up. And so we intentionally are not saying anything about that because that doesn't matter to the discussion here. The discussion here is about what trouble you could get in and how to keep yourself out of that trouble because of the laws of our country as they stand right now. And, you know, things could change even still, you know, and so (laughs) be aware of that and pay attention to, to those kinds of things. And it's, it's, it, the idea here is not to make this a, you know, a, a war between sides, but for us to be able to talk rationally about this decision and what some of the implications are for good or for evil. I think that's really well put. And I, I've been doing a little bit of writing on this for a couple of different reasons. And I will tell you, it is amazing how fast this stuff is changing. I mean, literally overnight, I can get up and I can open my browser and the laws in three states will have changed. Mm -hmm. It's it's really a fast moving situation. But that being said, what doesn't really change is the extent to which we rely on digital data, either for our jobs or to move around the world or to track different aspects of our health. And that's that's our subject for today. Mm-hmm. So let me just open real quickly, Jethro, with the brief <laughs> review. Everybody, I assume, is aware of the fact that on June 24th, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down its decision in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, uh, Women's Health Organization, which is a case that arose out of Missouri and was a request by the state of Missouri to substantially restrict Uh, abortion rights or access to abortion, I should say, in that state in ways that required Roe v. Wade to be overturned. So Mm -hmm. one of the things that I think is useful for people to think about, this is an argument I've made in my book, American Privacy and the Court and the Cross and so forth, is that while Roe v. Wade is best known for talking about the subject of abortion, it's actually the third of three privacy cases that the Supreme Court decided beginning in 1965. So in 1965, uh, the court established the concept of a right to privacy in a case called Griswold versus Connecticut, in which uh, one of the founders of Planned Parenthood, or actually I guess director, because it was founded a while a, a while before that, um, basically challenged a Connecticut law from 1873 that said nobody could provide information about or contraceptives to married couples. And so they challenged that uh, basically as a violation of the Constitution, took it up to the Supreme Court, and the court uh, 
created or announced a right to privacy. And one of the issues that you run into is that, of course, there's no word privacy in the Constitution of the Bill of Rights. So in order for Justice William O. Douglas to get there, he had to patch together what he called the penumbras or shadows of the Bill of Rights. And if you're fascinated by all of this, get American privacy. I go into it in more detail than you could probably want. But the point was that, that in order for them to overturn the Connecticut law, they needed some basis for doing so. So they said the right of married people to talk to a doctor about contraceptives and have them prescribed was within this right, uh, this zone of privacy. 1972, they extend that to unmarried people so that now, you know, if you're a single woman, for instance, you could go to the doctor and get a prescription for um, contraceptives. And then a year later in 1973, the question arose again out of the state of Texas, and interestingly, given what Texas has been doing lately, but the question arose if a state was prohibiting a person's ability to get an abortion, how did that interact with the right to privacy in terms of conversations with a doctor? And so basically in Roe v. Wade, the court was balancing three separate constitutional issues. Number one, a person's right to privacy in order to have intimate, confidential discussions with their doctor, or, and number two, a state's police interest in making sure that procedures are safe, performed by competent people, that kind of thing. And then thirdly, the life interest or the state's interest in protecting the life of a viable fetus, which is where the court came down, which in most pregnancies back then was 27 to 28 weeks. Medical science has gotten that down realistically to about 23 to 24. Um, so that's what Roe v. Wade did. So what the Supreme Court in Dobbs did was basically say that it was going to overrule Roe and another case, Planned Parent could be Casey, and put the state's rights to protect the development of the embryo and fetus above the privacy rights of the woman carrying uh, or going through the pregnancy. And I should say, obviously, with respect to this, that um, probably the more accurate and inclusive term is pregnant person, because we've got some interesting trans issues that arise, be that as it may. The question then becomes, in those states, and there are a half dozen already and more are coming, where the abortion procedure has been criminalized, what does that do in terms of digital investigations? And that's really the focus of what we're looking at. And then there's one curveball for us to get into, uh, and a shout out to Texas, we'll get there. So that's the summary so far. <laughs> so I I appreciate you going through that because when you first told me probably a year and a half or so um, that Roe was originally a privacy case, I did not get that. I didn't think that's what it was ever about. And I've never done, you know, a really deep, serious dive on Roe v. Wade all the way, you know, before knowing you and, and talking about these things. And so- yeah. It, it was very interesting to me because I didn't understand that before. And that's given me a different perspective on it. Yeah. Um, and um, 
and I think the other thing is that it's interesting to look at this from a privacy perspective of who gets to know about these things and who doesn't and and how much they are publicized, which is going to come into you know some of these different ideas as we talk through. So let's talk about this first. Like how are cyber traps going to arise in this situation? And I think the um the thing that is interesting as if you become a parent <laughs> is that you know that not all pregnancies are a hundred percent um guaranteed, right? No, that God, no. <laughs> that um that spontaneous miscarriages happen and they are challenging and I think the the suspicious circumstances piece is that it's sometimes it's difficult to tell whether somebody self-medicated and gave themselves an abortion or whether somebody um, had a spontaneous miscarriage. And it is a difficult thing uh, for anybody to go through from the word go, but that, that makes it, I, I guess what I'm saying is that if, if it is talked about then, and somebody is, concerned that maybe it was a performed abortion instead of a spontaneous miscarriage, then that gives people reason to start investigating and figuring out why, especially in these six states. Anything right. else there? No, I, I think that, you know, if we reference six states, that's like as of Monday morning when yes. you and I are talking, <laughs> because honestly, by the end of the summer, I think it's going to be closer to a dozen and, and then so on and so forth. So one of the things that you know we you and I have cautioned people about in the past is that if you are concerned about any of these issues, you need to investigate what the state of your state's law is mm-hmm. at the time because this stuff is changing very quickly. Um, so we're starting with the criminal piece, Jethro, and I think that that's going to be the most um, headline raising and so on and so forth. I mean, that's going to be the thing that gets a lot of attention. And a couple of people have approached me um, and asked about the impact of HIPAA with respect to all of this, because when you do a little bit of research in this area, the, the bulk of the criminal referrals for potential violations of abortion law actually come from healthcare providers, from mm-hmm. colleagues, from uh, you know nurses, uh, from administrators who may think that something untoward has occurred. And what people need to understand is that there's a very specific exception in the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act that says that if a doctor or a medical organization believes that a criminal act has occurred, then they are not bound by patient privacy. They absolutely can turn that information over. And one of the things that you know, I've learned, and again, we're two guys without the equipment that is really most at issue in these cases, and I'm conscious of that. But one of the things that I've learned in terms of better understanding this is that it is very difficult sometimes from a medical perspective to determine whether a spontaneous miscarriage occurred or that the miscarriage was actually the result of medication. You know, and there are a couple of different medications that are used for self-medicated abortions, you know, over a nine or 10 week period or or up to a nine or 10 week period. So, you know, the upshot here is that any potential, any miscarriage potentially, or any termination of pregnancy sort of starts as a suspicious act now in Mm -hmm. states where there's no legal 
ability to have an abortion. So then the reporting goes out to law enforcement or goes to the local prosecutor. And then we kick into all of the criminal investigation stuff that you and I have talked about, right? In terms of do, doing subpoenas to online companies, forensics, et cetera. Yeah, and just to add that the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act also has a provision that um, says that that privacy can be waived if you believe that a child in particular has been um, harmed or subject to abuse and neglect. And so the the same carve out for uh, ignoring the privacy of someone is is allowed there. So this also includes a mandatory reporting piece that you are required as part of your license in, I think, all 50 states to to report if you suspect anything. So that means not even with evidence, but if you suspect something, um, then you are required to report it, which in these states where this is illegal, if you have a student who is pregnant, then and then they say that their parents didn't like that they were pregnant, and then they come back later and say that they are no longer pregnant, you know, you... Right. It sounds to me like you could be required to report that. And this is just something that, it, again, as we're talking about the repercussions of this, we need to think about if you are required to report that, you could be opening up those criminal investigations without being aware that that's actually what you're doing. Um, well, that, that's a super good point. I mean, I think it would be really fascinating to dig into that in a little bit more detail, but certainly as a shout out to educators and in particular school nurses, you know, that they should be talking to their school or district council to find out how the law plays out with respect to that. And I think you're absolutely right. You know, if a, you know, young female student is throwing up in the nurse's office and then two weeks later, everything's fine. I think you're right. That probably does trigger some kind of inquiry at the very least. Yeah. So so there's the criminal part. And we could go on for hours probably about that. But we <laughs> we're going to move on. And we're going to talk about the other aspect of this that is really fascinating, which is civil litigation. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what's happening there? Sure. This um, Back in September of 2021, Texas got the idea that one of the ways to minimize challenges to any anti-abortion law was to take the state out of it as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So in a piece of legislation best known as Senate Bill 8 or SB 8 down in Texas, the Texas legislature created a system whereby the enforcement of the anti-abortion law is actually deputized to private citizens. And what that specifically means is that Texas, Texas allows private citizens to bring a civil lawsuit against anyone that they believe has performed or induced an abortion or has aided and abetted the inducement of an abortion. And actually, one of the things that still has to be sorted out because the language is so broad is that theoretically, anyone in the country who becomes aware that someone else anywhere in the country has assisted a Texas resident in getting an abortion can sue that person. So you've got the crazy situation of maybe somebody in Pennsylvania discovering that their cousin drove somebody from Texas to California for an abortion. 
So they could then theoretically sue their cousin or they could sue the person in California and try to recover for that procedure. And what Texas went on to provide is that if the plaintiff is successful, then the defendant has to pay a minimum of $10,000 in statutory damages, plus the costs and attorney's fees of bringing the lawsuit. And obviously that can get pretty expensive. Um, the other thing is that if the plaintiff loses, the defendant can't recover attorney's fees and costs. So the only risk to the plaintiff is paying the attorney to bring the lawsuit in the first place. I mean, if they lose, presumably they still have to pay the attorney. The thing that's going to make this interesting, and, and you, I hate to use this term because it does get thrown around too much, but you almost have a little bit of a legal civil war going on, Jethro, because a number of states, including California, Oregon, I think, Massachusetts now, uh, New York State, a bunch of the others, that are, are more liberal on this issue have now adopted legislation where they basically will not enforce any lawsuit that attempts to do what Texas, Oklahoma, or Idaho is currently planning on doing in terms of this, what they refer to as a bounty litigation system. Well, and uh, we, we know from the technology space about um, patent trolls who go and try to get... Um, try to sue for violations of patents that are largely, you know, a, gosh, what's the term? Just a, a mill where they just file mm -hmm. tons of lawsuits. And, you know, you can very easily see something like that happening. But the real issue here that we're talking about is that the same kinds of rules apply when you litigate in other things where there is discovery, there is going and looking at cell phone records, travel history, um, social media, looking in your browsers, what apps you have, all those kinds of things. And, you know, trying to get companies to divulge those things as well. And I think that the real, yeah. the real issues here are that if you're not aware, then you could get yourself into a difficult situation. And if you are just, you know, again, going back to data, if you if you aren't aware of where your data is going and what your data is saying, then there, there are some very real issues. And that's what we talk about all the time on here. <laughs> so. and, and, and we are not done with this particular episode, let me assure you, because uh, we will go through some of the kinds of data that is potentially at risk. But I think um, the last point on the bounty system, Jethro, to point out to folks is that in contrast with those states where they've criminalized the uh, the abortion procedure and so forth, the standard for that is beyond a reasonable doubt. So they need to show beyond a reasonable beyond a reasonable doubt that someone has performed an illegal abortion or has aided and abetting abetted the obtaining of an illegal abortion. With respect to the bounty system, though, the plaintiff only has to show by a preponderance of the evidence that that occurred. And that's mm -hmm. a much lower standard than beyond a reasonable doubt. So it creates, I think, much more vulnerability for anybody who might put themselves in that situation. Before we move on, let's hear from our sponsors. And before we get into um, specifically the data that's collected and, and 
um, and what can go there. There are a couple of things that we want to talk about as it relates to educators specifically, which is number one, the social media posts that are contrary to state law. And that is something that you always need to be aware of as an educator, that you could be posting something that is not in line with what the state law is. And so that becomes a, a challenge um, if you don't know what the state law is or don't agree with the state law you are putting yourself in a vulnerable position um, because of that. And the second thing is um, when students request advice from you as an educator, and this is something that we have, we have talked about ad nauseum, but we're going to keep talking about it because if that's on your district device with district communication tools, you have no expectation of privacy of that not being seen. And in fact, you should expect that that is monitored and that people are, are watching that. On the other hand, we also strongly encourage educators to not have side one-on-one -on -one, uh, messages with students in any kind of electronic form because that's not appropriate either. And so trying to find the balance, you know, if you're doing it on your personal cell phone and you're violating state law on your personal cell phone, then your school is really going to throw up their hands and say, we have nothing to do with you because you weren't using proper communication tools. And if you're using communication tools, they're just going to pull it out and say, she or he is violating the policy <laughs> right here. And so, you know, you're, you're kind of stuck in a, in a difficult spot, but those are things that you, you've got to be aware of as an educator. I think that's, that's really huge. And, and of course, shout out to you for having actually been a frontline educator and administrator in a position to know whereof you speak. I will, I will throw out one other thing on this particular point, Jethro, because it does sound like we're, we're sort of tossing the First Amendment overboard uh, with respect to social media posts and so forth. And Really, we're not doing that. But the problem is, and again, we go back to our, our folks on the Supreme Court, that the court has created a standard for public employees that does make it difficult to comment on these issues. And yes, you have a First Amendment right to post pretty much whatever you want. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just you also have a First Amendment right to deal with the consequences right. of, of what you post. And the court has made it clear that if your post um, causes disruption or lessens your effectiveness within the classroom because you're raising some really controversial or polarizing point, then disciplinary action can be taken. And that's just simply the reality of being a public employee given given these court precedents. So if you're in a conservative district within a state where abortion is now illegal and you are publicly advocating to the contrary, a school board could conclude that your ability to instruct in that district is no longer possible. Mm -hmm. It's hard. It really is because obviously woven into all of this um, is the importance of the First Amendment to discussion, to the ability of people like us to have these podcasts and talk about difficult issues. Absolutely true. But courts have really allowed school districts to balance that right against the ability to teach students. Mm -hmm. And so you need to keep that in mind at, at all times, really. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, so let's get into what data is collected. And first, we want to give a shout out to you and your book, Cybertraps for Expecting Moms and Dads. Um, really wonderful book um, that is probably due for an update, right? I mean, it is. There's a little bit of a detour we'll talk about in the next couple of weeks. Um, I'm kind of not quite ready to let people know, but yeah. Yeah. Um, there's no question but, that some of them. But that being said, even though an update's due, this is still a great book and it is a fantastic read. It is a great gift for anybody who's expecting just to be aware. And we're not just talking about, you know, technology specific things, but also identity of your child and whether or not you control and own that or somebody else does. And I think for me, that was one of my favorite parts of that is, is thinking about that. And uh, it really made me decide to stop posting pictures of my kids online. And oh, that's such, that. That, that makes me feel really good, Jethro, actually. I appreciate that. Yeah, I really. Because, that's that. That's huge. Yeah, it's a real thing because their identity is theirs, not mine. And that book really helped me understand that in a way that was um, that was that was powerful and made me decide to to change my behavior in a big way. And <laughs> well, it's it's definitely still available on Amazon. Uh, we will definitely have to talk to the board about creating a structure to make an update. Yeah, uh, feasible, sure. and I think that's a re a really good idea. Uh, the reason I mentioned cyber traps for expecting moms and dads is is not really to get the uh, back padding so much from Jethro as it is. To, but you'll take it. <laughs> to, I'm, are you kidding me? Do I do I look foolish? Um, but to let people know that it was really the first time that I dug into this issue of um, pregnancy privacy, because what I was talking about in that. Uh, was the fascinating ways in which um, information about people's pregnancy leaked out into the world. And there's this great anecdote that's been floating around the internet about the dad who all of a sudden saw that his daughter was getting advertisements for pregnancy-related uh, stuff down at Target, and he goes down to Target and starts yelling at the manager, and then, you know, three, four weeks later goes back and kind of shamefacedly apologizes that maybe Target knew more than he did about what uh -huh. his daughter was, was doing. Um, and then, you know, the other story that I thought was absolutely fascinating was that this guy went on to Reddit and he was complaining bitterly about how his wife's uh, Fitbit watch was no longer working properly and the blood pressure readings were off the scale and he was ranting and raving about, you know, the text wouldn't get back to them. And finally, somebody from Fitbit chimed into the Reddit discussion and said to the guy, um, dude, any possibility your wife is pregnant? Because that would cause these readings. And bingo, uh, he was about to become a dad. So, <laughs> you know, the, the point of that was that the data reveals things about us in unexpected ways, right? And and most of the time, and, and certainly with respect to Cybertrust for expecting moms and dads, I was writing that in a relatively lighthearted way, right? Because this was, what, five years ago, four or five years ago? And back then, even though it was a vague threat, I didn't really think that Roe was going to go bye-bye this quickly. Now, of course, all of the data issues that I was talking about then are much more pressing for people, you know, in terms of what gets collected, how it can be used, uh, how easily law enforcement can get it, and much more importantly, 
how vulnerable it is to sale and redistribution because mm. none of the companies that we upload our data to are bound by HIPAA. That's right. They're not because as we learned from Adam Stone, the only people who are bound by HIPAA are health professionals. And, and because we often don't understand that or don't know that, we think that our, that our data is protected from being sold or shared. But that is not the case. What is protected is our relationship with our doctor of them not sharing what we're doing. And this is is such a key point because we're putting all this data in so many different places and and we're just freely sharing it so often when we really need to be aware of what we're doing because all across the country, the data sharing provisions are different and they're different across the world as well. And Mm, just because you're putting your data in an app doesn't mean that that app is following the strictest guidelines on that and could have servers in a different country where there is no jurisdiction over over what is done with that data. And the reality that is just tragic is that it's nearly impossible to tell. It's nearly impossible to know where your data is going. And that makes it very challenging when you're focused on privacy. Now, we're not going to get through all of these different things that collect data in this list, but I encourage you to check out the show notes at cybertraps.com to review that list and just think about where your stuff is going. So I wanted to just highlight a couple of these and and talk about what things um, we're seeing and, and how this could potentially tie into this or anything else that causes you <laughs> to violate the law in some way that you may not be totally uh, aware of. So the, and, the first and, one, and just go ahead. before you launch in Jethro, I'll turn it back over to you, but it is important to put a thumbprint on this that neither Jethro nor I are advocating any criminal activity whatsoever. So let's be absolutely clear about that, but it is important for people to understand how data gets collected and where it can go. Yeah. So we'll start with regular social media, which is one of the words that I love that you put up, which is selfie incrimination um, and tagging your location, tagging different um, people or things, all that kind of stuff, being aware of what you're taking pictures of and what you're posting and, and what who you're sharing your story with is a really important thing to be aware of that, um, especially if you are on social media all the time, you may not see how these things can come back and, and harm you later. And also periodically searching yourself on search engines Mm -hmm. and within these social media streams to see what other people are posting about you. I mean, it used to be a huge problem with Facebook where you could basically be randomly and and sort of semi-secretly tagged by people. And you wouldn't know it unless you did a search. And and all of a sudden, all of these photos popped up that you had never seen before. To give Facebook a tiny modicum of credit, they at least tell you now when you've been tagged. Um, But you should still be aware of what's being put out in the world about you. Yeah, for sure. Which, Which of these would you like to highlight, friend? Well, I'm going to highlight the one that absolutely fascinates me because I think we're really um, we're really just in the beginning days of how this will all play out. And that's geolocation. Right. 
So the point of geolocation is that from an advertising perspective, the most powerful information they can have is where you are. So you can be served an advertisement that is relevant to you at that location. And it's also obviously relevant to businesses. They want to know who's come into their general area, who might be interested. Um, cell companies obviously need to know where you are in order to forward messages and phone calls and things like that. Um, the problem is that this geolocation information, it can be cell tower pings, it can be location tracking like Foursquare or Swarm or some of these other things. It can be your own geo announcements. This is the selfie incrimination thing. Mm -hmm. If you've got location turned on on Twitter, for instance, every one of your tweets will be tagged with where you are. Um, and then you've got location tracking by apps that are specifically designed for that. So maps, Google Maps, Waze, iMaps, all the rest of that stuff. When you combine geolocation information with other information, it becomes this incredibly powerful tool for figuring out not only where you've been and where you're going, but who you're doing it. And again, this information is not protected by any federal statute. It's not protected by most state statutes. I mean, there's a couple that try. But it also is, unfortunately, the information that has the most economic value for these various apps and companies. So there's tremendous pressure on them to make it available to whoever shows up and wants to buy it. Uh, there was a, a case from the beginning of the spring, and I think that this has actually changed now. But for $160, somebody was able to walk into a company and get data on months of people coming to and going from an abortion provider in one of the states. Mm -hmm. And that information can then be used to target them with advertisements. You can do targeted advertising on Facebook or Instagram or what have you. Um, so it can obviously be used by law enforcement or by some kind of bounty person trying to identify who might actually be engaged in an illegal activity. Yeah. And on that, I had a really fascinating experience. Uh, I think it was probably two years ago now, uh, just after COVID started, someone said they moved off the grid to get away from like, get away from everybody and like be there in their own place and not have anybody know where they are all the time because they lived in a city and people knew about where they lived or and where they worked and so they wanted some some privacy and they had turned on the twitter wow. location feature posted a picture of the place and you could literally go um go on to go to that location in twitter see where it was find that in google maps do street view and get the same exact picture that they took and posted and it was just like <laughs> A total, it was very sad <laughs> to see that because it didn't need to happen that way. And no. it didn't have to have to be that way, but they just forgot to turn off their, um, you, their location. You know, would, would pro these days would probably know where Jimmy Hoffa is. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So two, two last things before we close up. Yeah. Um, yeah. Looming constitutional issues that we should be thinking about. One, the right to travel and two, free speech, freedom of the press. Uh, we just got a couple minutes left. So what do you want to add about those, Fred? 
Okay. Well, I look, I, I think that it will come as no surprise to people that if you've got a state that is adamantly against abortion as a procedure, the state legislators are not going to be thrilled about the prospect of people going to California or New York or what have you to obtain the procedure that's banned in their state. So there's a lot of active interest in the possibility of trying to pass state-level travel bans for this specific purpose. Now, in the work that I've done on this, um, I've learned that there's a number of cases at the Supreme Court level that say that there is a right to travel embedded in the Constitution. The problem is that it's not an enumerated right. There's no part of the Constitution or the Bill of Rights that specifically says you have a right to travel. So in that respect, the right to travel that we all take for granted is the equivalent of the right to privacy. You have to dig around a little bit to find a reason to say there's a right to travel in the US Constitution. So if you like going from state to state without interference, this should make you a little bit nervous. We don't know what this court would do if they were presented with a law, for instance, by state Missouri, saying that they are banning out-of-state travel for someone who's trying to obtain an abortion procedure. So there's that. That's going to be fascinating. And then the other one is, and this gets much more directly, Jethro, to what you and I talk about, is that obviously the internet is no respecter of borders, right? Mm -hmm. So information that gets put up in the world is obtainable anywhere. And again, some state legislators are exploring whether or not there's some mechanism for blocking access within their state to content that's online that relates to an illegal thing. Um, now, you know, think about, for instance, trying to prevent people from getting access to information about medical marijuana or something like that, or what have you. It's extremely difficult to do. And it would take, I think, a fairly substantial uh, reshaping of our understanding of the internet and the First Amendment for these, for such a law to be authorized. But that being said, you know, it's clear that there's some, there's some folks out there, and I don't know if they'll gain traction, but there are some folks out there who are willing to go to extraordinary lengths to enforce their particular view of this. So we'll see. Yeah. And that's something that, again, you just want to be aware of. And mm -hmm. um, it, it is incredibly challenging. I, both of those things would be incredibly challenging to enforce. How do you prevent someone right. from traveling across state lines without setting up checkpoints all across the way, which right. I don't think right. anybody wants to have happen. I was in Tennessee last week and drove uh, from Nashville to Chattanooga. And part of that uh, yeah. is crossing into Georgia on, um, I think it's I-25, I can't remember exactly, but crossing mm -hmm. into Georgia and then back into Tennessee. And I was just thinking about, man, if you had a checkpoint at both of those uh, both of those border crossings, it is, it's about like a three mile stretch. The, the backup would, oh. you know, it would, it would block that whole thing. So anyway, just a silly, well, thing, those are challenging issues. Yeah. No, I think that's a great example. And I would refer people to uh, a quick Google search of Dover and Brexit and get a sense yeah. of what an absolute nightmare that absolutely, that absolutely would be. And, you know, honestly, it's very poignant. Look, I, I think I've given you humorous uh, 
examples in the past because I love movies so much. But if you go back and you watch The Hunt for Red October and you've got Sam Neill talking to Sean Connery, they're two Russian sailors. And he's dreaming about taking a Winnebago and traveling around the United States. And one of the poignant questions he asks Sean Connery is, no papers? Sean Connery says, no papers. And, you know, boy, I'd hate to lose that. Yeah, for sure. And having lived in Russia where I did have to have papers to travel everywhere, I... I do not like that idea either. Well, we so, should have opened with that, actually. Yeah. That's probably a great story. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that'll be for a later time. Sounds All right, good, Jeff. Great, great chat, Fred. Yes, likewise, as always. I really, really appreciate it. Well, folks, that wraps up this episode of the Cybertraps podcast. In the coming weeks, we'll continue our coverage of emerging trends in a variety of areas, including digital misconduct, cyber safety, cybersecurity, privacy, and the challenges of high-tech parenting. Quick shout out to fellow board member Scott Rabinowitz for next week when we talk about advertising to Gen Z and millennials, which should be fascinating. Um, Along the way, all these conversations, we will talk to our growing collection of international experts who are helping us to understand the risks and the rewards of digital technology. You can find the Cybertraps podcast on all of your favorite podcast apps, and we hope that you'll share the show with your friends and colleagues and reach out to us if you have guests, questions, or topic suggestions. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Jethro Jones and Fred is at Cybertraps. And if you're still listening, you must have loved this conversation. Please leave us a five-star rating and review. We appreciate having you here and look forward to seeing you next week on the Cybertraps podcast.